Well, this morning our scripture comes from Acts chapter 8, verse 25 to 31. And it says this. After they had further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the conduct, which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran, to the, ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you were reading, Philip asked? How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. That is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Welcome this morning to Bethany. We'll just take a minute and pray together and also encourage you to really consider uh, attending next weekend as we look at our partnership with World Relief with respect to refugees. Uh, one of our strong desires as a community is that we would contribute to the thriving of God's kingdom in the city of Seattle. And this is one very significant way in which we can participate in that. So both to be educated and to ask God if there's a way for you to participate uh, next weekend. We'll be doing that together. Let's pray now as we look at the text. Father, thanks so much that we can gather within these walls. Thank you that your Holy Spirit is desiring to teach us this morning and particularly to shape us to be people who uh, are, are living lives at ease in a sense because we are not resisting the movement of the Holy Spirit. May we be attentive to that which you reveal both this morning and from our moment this morning. Uh, uh, make us listeners, Father, and responders in order that we might fully walk in the story of hope you desire for each of us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So we'll just begin by showing you something you all know is the saying, common saying. Go ahead, you can put it down now. Uh, does anyone remember it? What's it called? A bird in the bush. But did you notice? How many thes are there? Two thes. Who missed that the first time? Ha ha! Most of you did miss it. Most of you did miss it because we have a rush to judgment. In other words, we have a paradigm, and that paradigm governs our lives, and so we, we see something, and immediately we, we put a boatload of assumptions on that which we see. Does that make sense to you? Oh, yeah, homeless person. Oh, yeah, uh, gay couple. Oh, yeah, rich person. Oh, yeah, somebody with a Donald Trump sticker on their car. Oh, yeah. And then we, like, we assume a great deal, and we fill in the gaps, but it's dangerous to fill in the gaps because when we fill in the gaps, we actually run the risk of not hearing what the Holy Spirit is saying to us. And Jesus uh, articulates this and demonstrates it in his own life. He articulates it in Matthew 13 when he says regarding the Pharisees, they have ears, but what? They don't hear. They have eyes, but they don't see. In other words, the Holy Spirit is revealing things and they are unresponsive because they're busy filling in the gaps. And one of the classic examples of this is the Pharisees. In Acts 13, Paul will later say regarding the Pharisees, you killed the Messiah about which the text you study and memorize spoke. In other words, you missed it. You, like, you knew the text, but you, 
in a colossal, catastrophic way, missed the point. Not enough to know the text. What's critical is not that we know the text, in fact, but that we know the Holy Spirit. And so the upstream solution for us to live the life for which we're created is that we learn uh, to listen to the Holy Spirit, and we're going to talk about that this morning. There are many examples in the Bible of attentiveness, and I think maybe the most famous example of attentiveness in the Bible is the burning bush, where this, there's this bush burning, and Moses, rather than walking past the burning bush, or, you know, He's on a cell phone, so he didn't even see the burning bush. Instead, Moses, he says, I'm, it's significant language, I must turn aside and see why the bush isn't being consumed. So there's something there, there's an encounter, and Moses has enough uh, space in his life and, and is attuned enough in his life to pay attention to something that is out of the ordinary, and in the paying of attention, uh, God speaks to him. And I think one of the clearest examples of radical attentiveness seen in the whole Bible is the one that we look at this morning, uh, and we see it in a man named Philip, who we met last week. Radical attentiveness. So we're going to continue this morning on a journey with Philip, because Philip's life is carrying blown by the wind of the Holy Spirit. And as a result, new discoveries are made, and the change in one man's life will go on to play a significant role in history. So again, as last week, learning to be attentive unfolds in a, in a kind of a three-act play. We're in a very narrative part of the Bible, and so there's, there's like the curtain's going to rise, there's three acts. Act number one, being attentive to the Spirit. Act number two, being attentive to the message. And act number three, being attentive to the person. We're going to look at all three of these this morning, and we begin by setting a context. So if, like, if you can kind of visualize with me for a minute here, the curtain rises, and the, here's the scene. We are on a road... Uh, south of Jerusalem that ultimately will head down south all the way to Ethiopia. And there's a chariot on this uh, road, southward bound, and uh, the man on the chariot is African. He's from Ethiopia. He's gone to Jerusalem to worship, and when he got there, he couldn't worship. He was excluded from the temple. Two reasons he's excluded from the temple. Uh, number one, because he's a Gentile. Number two, because he's a eunuch. So here's a guy, he's on a chariot. When the curtain opens, there's a chariot and it's heading south. There's a guy on this chariot and he's reading the scroll of Isaiah. He'd gone up to worship, but he couldn't worship. And again, two reasons. Because he's a Gentile, because he's a eunuch. Let's look at both of these just briefly so you understand. First of all, because he's a Gentile, because you see the Jewish faith had this kind of hierarchical form of exclusion. And the only person who could encounter God, in a sense, face-to-face was the high priest. So you had the high priest, then you had priests, then you had kind of the pure uh, Jews, then you had, <clears throat> then you had the, the, the lesser Jews, the common Jews, then you had women, then you had Gentiles, and then there were those who were completely excluded. So if you look at it, this, this is kind of the, the, the temple, right? And you can see if you're a Gentile, you can only go so far. But uh, this guy, the eunuch... Like, he doesn't get in the door, because not only is it Gentile, <clears throat> which will prevent him from being in the inner court, but he's also a eunuch. And, and so let me explain eunuch just for a minute here. <clears throat> Excuse me. The Greek word for eunuch literally means the guardian or keeper of the couch, which is weird. But, the, but here's the deal. It was the woman who would rest on the couch. So he's really the guardian or keeper of the woman. And in other words, 
he is a man who is safe with women because he uh, can't or does not have sexual intimacy with women. So he's safe, right? Uh, and there are two kinds of eunuchs, uh, history tells us. There were eunuchs by force. In other words, they're castrated. Eunuchs by birth, what we might today call gay. And I'm just going to say at the outset, we don't know which kind of eunuch he was. And so this is not a sermon about homosexuality, just to clear the air. Uh, if you're left-leaning, understand this man may have been a eunuch by force, castrated. We don't know. Uh, if you're right-leaning, more conservative, understand this man might be gay. We don't know. And so here's what I do. When I come to a, a text like this, and there's two options, uh, and, and I don't know, then when people ask me, do you know what I say? I don't know. It's very liberating <laughs> to say I don't know when I don't know. I don't have to make it up. I don't have to presume that it fits my predis pre uh, predisposed opinion of some sexual ethical issue. This is just utterly not about that. But I say it because we have a tendency to read into the text sometimes. And, it's, and it, we're healthy when we don't read into the text and just allow the text to speak what the text speaks and not assume other things. So, but the, what we do know is this term refers to men who were placed in very high positions of trust because they could be trusted alone with women. And so eunuchs served and guarded women in these very powerful households. And because of their intimate access to the royal court, they often rose to senior government positions. And so in this story, the Ethiopian eunuch is treasurer to the queen of Ethiopia, which is a pretty powerful position. So here's what we have. We have a man heading south in his chariot uh, with probably a court of people with him. He's heading south, and this is what we know. He's wealthy, he's hardworking, he's trustworthy, he's faithful, he's seeking Jehovah, and boom, he's shut out of worship. He can't worship. And the problem arises because of uh, Deuteronomy 23, verse 1. In other words, what shuts him out from even the court of the Gentiles is Deuteronomy uh, 23, 1, which says castrated men, or men with, quote, in the Bible, literally, it reads this way, men with crushed testicles are forbidden from entering the temple. Not a children's sermon this morning, but it's too late. <laughs> so on this basis, uh, many believe, most believe, that he wasn't even allowed in the court of Gentiles, uh, no matter what kind of eunuch he was. And here's the main point, he was shut out. And so get this now, this guy traveled 2,500 miles, all right, to get there. That's like twice the distance of, from Vancouver to Tijuana. Like he went down and up, that's one way. So he travels 2,500 miles uh, to, to, uh, to worship Jehovah, and he's turned away without even being allowed to enter the temple. And so when we pick up the story, right, the curtain rises, he's on his way home, and it appears that he picks up while in Jerusalem a scroll containing the book of Isaiah, or he may have already had it, and he's reading it in his chariot. He's wealthy, high position, uh, but by virtue of blood and sexual identity, he's shut out of the temple. And so this actually, now it makes sense that he's reading Isaiah 53. Why? Because Isaiah 53 is a chapter in Isaiah about being rejected. I can just imagine him reading. Oh, he was led away? I was just led away from the temple. I tried to get in. They wouldn't let me in. He was humiliated by being judged? I was just humiliated by being judged. And he's reading this text, perhaps identifying with the text, and we know that he has big questions about the text he's reading, and that's when we pick the story up. 
So in, in Act 1, uh, this is what we learn. Philip, being attentive to the Spirit, ends up encountering the eunuch. But in Act 1, we see that the reason that Philip is in conversation ultimately with the eunuch, the reason he's in conversation is because he is uh, 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 attentive to the Holy Spirit. He's attentive to the Holy Spirit. Uh, so uh, watch this. Here's the text. This is a crazy text. Let me read it again. An angel of the Lord says to Philip, get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. In other words, think about this with me. When Philip hears this, he's, he's north of Jerusalem in Samaria, all right? He's way up north. And not only is he up north, but if you were here last week, you realize that Philip had a ministry in Samaria that was growing and thriving. Most of this, it appears that many, if not most of the Samaritans in this one particular city had come to Christ. Uh, miracles were being performed. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, there was incredible excitement. Uh, uh, people are being delivered from uh, demonic oppression. Uh, all kinds of good things are happening. And of course, whenever there's a new church, there's a need for leadership too. And if I'm in charge of the universe, I'm like this. Philip, you started the church. You're the perfect guy to keep running the church, right? I mean, why not? You have the authority. You're known. You have credibility. You're trusted. You're there already. We don't have to move anybody. No moving expenses. It's done. Philip, stay. That's what, you, that's what I'd say, right? But not God. So this angel shows up to Philip and says, go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is ridiculous. Why? He's not, look, not only leave a dramatic, thriving work where it appears you're needed, but go. And I'm not sending you back to Jerusalem. In fact, I'm not even sending you a city. I'm sending you where? To a road. Like, who gets called to a road? And not just a road, not just any road. You're, like, I'm sending you to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza, which is a desert road, largely deserted, rarely used, and when it's used, it's usually populated by robbers. It's a risky road. And then, by the Spirit, again, he's told to go and attach himself uh, to this one chariot and hop on. Like, hop onto a private chariot. This isn't a bus. <laughs> this is someone's chariot. Can you imagine? You're at a gas station in Pasco, and the Holy Spirit says to you, just get in that car while the guy's in there buying a Snickers bar. And then, you know, when he's back, you're going to tell him about Jesus. Like, Really? Who does that? Well, Philip, apparently. And, and so there's, and there's two very important applications here. He went when he was called. That's the first thing. And, and, the, and the second thing, and it's also significant, if I can find my pages, is uh, he heard God's call. He went when he was called, and he, and he heard God's call. Those two things. And we have to start here. If I'm called, will I go? If you're called, will you go? Like, in spite of the fact that it made no sense, he went. In spite of the fact that I would bet my house, like, hanging out on that road is not on his bucket list, he went. Not his passion. Didn't come with a clear vision, five-year plan. But I, I'm just going to tell you, this is actually common in the Bible. Like, 
we're trained, and I train people as who are leaders to do this, begin with the end in mind. Are we trained that way? Like, hey, write your own tombstone and then think backwards. Like, what do you want people to say about you and what do you do with your life and then back. But here, in this case, when the Holy Spirit speaks to Philip, he doesn't say, hey, go to the road and here's what's going to happen. He just says, go to the road. That's all he says, go. In other words, he doesn't show us the master plan. He only shows us what? The next step. Does God operate that way? All the time. What does God say to Abraham? Hey, Abraham, go to the country I'll show you. Which country is that? Abraham might ask. I'm not telling, says God. Uh, and, uh, you know, how long is it going to take? I'm not telling you that either. What am I going to do when I, when I get there? I'm not telling you that either. I, I'm only giving you, here's one word, Philip. Oh, excuse me, uh, Abraham. One word, you go, I'll make you blessing. Moses, go back to Egypt. Yeah, could I have a plan of how you're going to deliver? Uh, here's God, you, like you wouldn't believe it if I told you. It's going to be frogs and gnats and darkness and hail. You know, it's going to be like ridiculous. So I'm not going to tell you, you just go. I'll give you a step. And watch this. Once you take that step, I'll give you the next step. And many of us in the room never know step two because we won't take step one until we know step ten. Like we want a plan and God says, I'm not giving you a plan. I'm only giving you the next step. And for this reason, often we don't go. Because we are, if I can be blunt, risk-averse in our culture. Like, uh, there's God's call, and there's pragmatic considerations. Do you understand what I mean by this? Here's the wind of the Holy Spirit, and it's, it's asking things of us. But there's a filter often for us that seems to trump God's particular call. It's, it's money, it's retirement, it's upward mobility, it's geographical preferences, and so God, God calls, and we, and we hear, but we don't want to go. And so then, when, when the, the pragmatic considerations trump the call, we find ourselves in a very practical way outside of God's story. We may know God, we may love God, we may be involved in the work that God is doing, but we're, we're not in the context that God has called us to, and I can just, I'll just tell you over and over, and over and over again in the Bible, God cares about context. I mean, the Apostle Paul is where God, uh, uh, excuse me, Acts is where God sends the Apostle Paul uh, to minister among the Gentiles, and he says, that doesn't make any sense. It's not practical. Here's the pragmatic consideration, God. You can read it in Acts about chapter 22 or something like that, 20. He says, God, here's the deal. Uh, let me tell you, I know the Jews. I am Jewish. I'm a Pharisee. Uh, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. I'm uniquely qualified to minister to the Jews. God says, I know all that. Go. I'm sending you far away to the Gentiles. That's, where, that's your field. Doesn't tell him what's going to happen. He just says this. You go. I'd suggest that all of us in the room need to consider ourselves self-referentially as servants. In other words, my hands are empty. I don't have a plan. I'm not attached to living in where it snows, though I love snow. Not attached to income, though I love income. <laughs> not, atta not attached because when I'm at, as soon as I'm attached, God can't, I can't hear God anymore. So I have to be willing to go, and, I, and when I'm called, I have to go. And so the other thing that's significant here is not only did, did he go when he was called, but it's, this is very important. He heard God's call through an angel in verse 26, through the Holy Spirit in verse 29. And one of Jesus' main concerns when Jesus walked among religious leaders was this. He was like this. You guys have ears, but you don't hear, Matthew 13. You have eyes, but you don't see. In other words, here's God. I'm calling, meh, meh, meh. You're not listening. 
And so when we pray for God's will to be done in that prayer, Jesus teaching us how to pray, may, may your will be done. When I pray for God's will to be done, then here's, there's a very important next step, and here's the next step. Listen. I need to learn to listen. I need to learn to listen to what God is saying through the events of life and recognize, actually believing that God will guide me. God will guide me through circumstances, through encounters. I ended up, uh, a guy came up to me between services, and he says, hey, uh, you know, I'm going to be attending Seattle Pacific next year. It's my first time in Seattle this morning, and I wanted to come here and meet you, and I said, oh, where are you from? Oh, Central Valley, California, you know. Oh, I'm from Central Valley, too. You know, and then we, he said, Seattle Pacific, and I said, oh, I went to Seattle Pacific. He asked me how I ended up at Seattle Pacific University. And I said, yeah, well, you know, I was, you know, I was called there. Well, what a cheap answer in a way, right? And so, uh, you know, he, he, the follow-up question, I love the follow-up question. What do you mean by that? Like, how did you hear God's voice? And then, here's the, this is the truth. Uh, you know, I'm, I've got three places, uh, you know, down in Southern California, Wheaton College in the Midwest, four places, Gordon College in the East Coast, and then Seattle Pacific. Four, four options. And the catalogs come in the mail. And when the catalog comes from Seattle Pacific... I am not a mountain guy. I'm not a, I wasn't, I hadn't skied. I didn't, I don't, I'm not a mountain guy. But when the catalog comes, on the cover of the catalog comes in the mail, pre-web, right? And, and um, it's Mount Shuxon, uh, my, Mount Baker. It's, it's on the cover of the catalog. And as soon as I saw the mountain, I was like this. I know where I'm going to school. <laughs> I, I don't know the rope, didn't own skis, never went climbing. But as soon as, as soon as I saw it, I was like, I know I'm going. Can God use a picture to guide you? Yeah. Can God use a conversation with a colonel or major or whatever he is to guide? Yeah. One text message, one picture, one conversation. Many of us are like this, man, I look, I, I got to make a decision, and I'm looking for the calling of God, but when I read, you know, Ezekiel 3 in my um, devotion this morning, I don't hear anything. Like, what's God saying to me? And I'm saying to you, uh, by showing up and learning to listen to the Spirit, by showing up in some quiet moments in the text, what, what, here's what happens. God gives you kind of new lenses and new ears, and now you hear the Spirit th through all of life, so that all of life becomes an opportunity for God to speak to you. We think that God is going to guide us always by the literal word of the text. And no, the text puts us in a frame of mind whereby we're able to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. Because God knows there are a thousand voices saying to you, buy me, taste me, use me, touch me, major in me, work for me, sleep with me. And, and, and we need quiet. And then in the quiet, we'll learn to hear the one voice that we need to hear, Christ. We used to have a ropes course up in the mountains and we would do this thing where we, uh, we'd send somebody out on the, on, the, on the course and they'd be blindfolded and then uh, you had to move from thing to thing up in the trees. And so we told everybody to give bad advice to the person on the, on the ropes course, right? Uh, ex except one person. And so then we'd say, okay, you got to listen for Jack's voice only. you got to listen for one voice. There's one voice. 
And, so what, and then, when, uh, it was my favorite thing to do on a rope. Ropes course is kind of boring to me. But once everybody's blindfolded and, and there's a thousand liars at the base, it's fun, <laughs> right? So he's got to listen, he's got to listen. And then, you know, at the end, we debrief this, and, and people would say this. It was very hard at first, but once I learned that, once I learned that voice, followed. I just said, learn to tune everything else out. Does that sound familiar? Here's John 10. My sheep hear my voice, says Jesus, and they follow me. I got to learn. I got to learn to listen to the voice of Christ. And to do that, I, I, I got to shut off all my tech stuff and open my Bible and listen and pray and remember that I have the Holy Spirit in me and ask Jesus to make me attentive today to how he will guide me through conversation, through encounter, through news, through texts. And he will guide me. And that's Philip. He hears God's call and he obeys. Which brings us to Act 2. Philip's very attentive to the message of the gospel. Very attentive to the message of the gospel. How do we know this? Because there are three questions that the eunuch asks once Philip does what the Holy Spirit tells him to do. Philip goes south. He goes to the road. He sees the chariot. The Spirit says, hey, hop up on that chariot. He goes, he hops up on the chariot, and at the time that he hops up on the chariot, the eunuch is reading aloud, which is the common way of reading in this particular time and place, and he happens to be reading from Isaiah, and he happens to be reading Isaiah 53, which says this, he was led as a sheep to slaughter, as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he does not open his mouth. In humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation? For his life is removed from the earth. The eunuch is reading that, and then uh, uh, Philip asks a question. He says in verse 30, do you understand what you're reading? Do you understand what you're reading? I love the eunuch's answer. How could I unless someone explains it to me, right? And this is often the way it is with the Bible. Bible the Bible isn't always self-evident and easy to understand, how can I know someone explains it to me? And he invites Philip to sit with him. And the passage of Scripture was, verse 32, this passage from Isaiah 53 about rejection. The eunuch answers Philip and says, hey, uh, tell me, of whom does the prophet speak? In other words, is this passage about rejection, Isaiah speaking about himself, or is Isaiah speaking about someone else? And then in, in, in verse 35, this is what you see. Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. Okay? So a couple of very practical applications here. Philip ultimately engages with someone who, who seems on the surface, according to his Jewish training, to be an unlikely candidate for the gospel. Does that, does that make sense? In other words, uh, this gets back to our, the triangle with which we begin the morning. Often we look at people and at a very uh, subconscious level, we decide whether we're going to engage with someone. And often our criteria for engagement uh, has to do with uh, our perceived possibility of connection 
and, and maybe their perceived possibility of response to the gospel or some other, some other thing. The, you, know, you know what I mean. We, people say this, yeah, I'm new at work, and after the first day, people go, yeah, I think I'm going to end up, you know, friends with him and him, but never him, right? Like we do, the, we make these judgments. Well, if Philip here is operating according to any conventional social norms, this is not a guy with whom he even engages in conversation, right? Uh, a, because he's Gentile. B, because uh, he's a eunuch. And so he's a, total, like he's a total outsider, unlikely candidate for the gospel, because Philip, being Jewish, knows that like, there's all these walls. But on the other hand, he's just been up to Samaria and watched everyone there become filled with the Holy Spirit. And so he engages out of obedience with someone who, though he is an unlikely candidate for the gospel, is expressing interest and has questions. So there are people all, there's people, I'll just say, there are people like this all around us and we don't know them until we listen to the Spirit and see the gospel as radically inclusive. In other words, who's a candidate for the gospel? Who's a candidate for the gospel? Everybody. And if everyone's a candidate for the gospel, then my antenna should no longer be, can I connect with you? Do I like you? Will will this be a fun, life-giving conversation? The criteria should be, if the Holy Spirit is setting up a relationship, that's all I need. So I say kind of the preemptive answer is, yes, Holy Spirit, if you want me in conversation here, then I'll be in conversation here. I have, like on my own street back home, uh, up in the mountains, I have my idea of people who I would love to see become believers. But also, when I step back, and as, as I'm doing this sermon, and I'm thinking through and praying for my neighbors, I realize that though there are people who I want to see come to Christ, there are other people who are, they're showing intense interest in the gospel and asking me questions about my job and uh, reading a book that I've written and asking for prayer regarding things. And to my shame... I've not yet engaged those people in conversation about Jesus because I have people over here that I desperately want to see come to Christ with whom I have a greater social connection. And so I invest here and here and here, but not here, even though here, these are the exact people who are responsive. And the only way we change that in our lives is to be attuned to the working of the Holy Spirit and to have the attitude of Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 6, which says this, sow your seed in the morning and sow your seed at night which is God's way of saying, look, just engage in in conversation wherever you find yourself because that's where God may be working. And you, we don't know how people respond. So our calling is just to like simply say, wow, wherever I am, I am going to, I am the presence of Christ. Lord, give me eyes to see and know the right thing to say in that moment. And then, and then good things begin to happen. And here's the other thing that you see here. The, we discovered the whole Bible is about Jesus. Because it says here that when he asked this question about Isaiah, the 53rd chapter, um, Philip opens his mouth, verse 35, and from this scripture, in Isaiah 53, from this scripture, he begins to preach Jesus to him. Now, the name Jesus is not in Isaiah 53, but Jesus is in Isaiah 53. And so this reminds me of Luke chapter 24, where Jesus preaches about Jesus to the disciples after the resurrection because they don't recognize him. 
And it says there, beginning with Moses, which is the book of Genesis, and the prophets, which is the rest of the Old Testament, beginning with Moses and the prophets, Jesus unfold, he opened the scriptures and said, look it, here I am. I, this is me. Abraham, look, I'm called to be a blessing. That's Christ. Isaac, who was sacrificed by, by Abraham, but not really sacrificed. I was sacrificed. So then I could rise from the dead. Moses, picture of Christ. Joseph, picture of Christ. Deliverance out of slavery. I came to deliver you. In other words, Christ is everywhere all through the Bible. And what I love about this is, let, let me just remind you, Philip is not a preacher. Philip is just a guy. But he's, he's been taught in the Scriptures to see Jesus everywhere. This is what I hope for all of us is that we will learn to see Christ everywhere and not just learn it for our own sake, but learn it so that we can show other people what God is saying through the entire text of the Bible because Christ is everywhere in the Bible. My, one of my goals is to, is to show this to you in the coming year so that you can open any passage and say, how is Christ here and see it? I hope that we can do this together and it's my intent that we do this together. And in the meantime, my encouragement to you is to buy and read the Jesus Storybook Bible. Have you heard of it? If you haven't, you should, everyone should own it. it you'll, this is one of those things you'll look at and you'll bypass it because it's got a little colorful picture on the front, you know, with Jesus in his funny robe and all that stuff like, a, like it's written for kids. And here's why it looks that way. It is written for kids. Fifth grade reading level, something like that. Uh, and it's perfect for you. <laughs> <laughs> why? Because, oh, look, here's, here's Jesus Here's the story of the gospel in Abraham. Here's the story of gospel in creation. Here's the story of Jesus in Moses. I want you to see it. That's what makes Bible reading fun for me anyway. So Jesus Storybook Bible, go ahead, pick it up, read it, and then we'll study this stuff together. But we should be people who can open our Bibles and find Christ. All of us, not the preacher, all of us. So then here's the last thing. Here's the third act. Philip is attentive to the work of God in the other. He explains how Jesus is in this text, how Jesus was rejected, cast off, crucified. Ultimately, we know by implication that he was, he was also resurrected. And he's explaining, he's explaining the gospel. And watch this, uh, verse 36. As they went along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, hey, look, there's water. Uh, I want to be baptized. And here's what I love. The Ethiopian eunuch is proactive about seeking the next step. And then look at what Philip does in verse 37. Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. Now, I don't know if you're following along in your Bible or not, but if you're following along in your NIV Bible, this is very interesting, that verse isn't there. In other words, uh, look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? Well, if you believe, you can be baptized. Now, there's many debates why it isn't there. It has to do with texts and manuscripts and, you know, tales from afar. I won't bore you with all that this morning. But some people think that the reason it isn't there is because it makes the gospel too easy. Wait, what do I have to do to be in Christ? And here's the answer. Uh, in essence, nothing. Just simply believe the fact that this work of Christ has been done for you. That's all you need to do. <laughs> Is that how we present the gospel? Often not. 
And do we let people believe that quickly? Often not. I was, some years ago, I'd preached, I'd given a call uh, to become a Christian, and a guy encounters me in this row here, halfway back, uh, and he'd been in the Alpha class here, and I knew that he didn't know anything about the Bible, and he was new, new to the faith, new to all of this, you know, he's reading, the, he's in the Bible, and then on this particular Sunday, he says, I'm ready, I want to be in Christ, I, what do I have to do? And this is to my shame, this is what I said, are you sure you're ready? Are you sure you're ready? Oh, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, what, I, is there a prayer? I mean, what's that, I'm ready for the next step. Yeah, well, let's talk a little bit, because I know the last time I met you, you had some doubts, and I want to make sure that all those doubts, and, you know, I'm resisting praying with him, so that he can know that he knows that he's in Christ. And finally, he, he grabs me and we, he sits me down and he says, I'm not leaving until I know that I'm in Christ. I'm not leaving. <laughs> Help me believe, right? And <laughs> here's what Philip said. I'm ready to be baptized. And here's what Philip said. Well, there's a two-year catechism and once you prove your faithfulness... <laughs> And have memorized the book of Isaiah and, and uh, you know, you can share your faith with 10 other people and you've cleaned up your sexual life and you're voting for the right party and you've given away and you tithe. I mean, yeah, let, once, once everything's in order, yeah, then come back here. I hope the water's still here. Uh, we'll baptize you. That's why that, some people think that that's why verse 37's gone. It's too easy. But I'm here to tell you it's not gone. It's not gone. This, all through the Bible, this is the gospel. Believe that God has done something for you that you could never do and receive it. In other words, very important, behavior follows belief, not vice versa. It's, everything starts with belief. If only it were true in our own practice. We'd, we'd be out on the street shouting the good news that God is creating a new world, that God has reconciled all of humanity to himself, that every dividing wall will be broken down, that every disease will be healed, that every tear will be dried from every eye, that we are made to be people of hope and joy, freedom from addiction, reconciled relationships. That's our life. Come on in. The party includes you. That's the gospel. It's that simple. And the good news is that good. But we make it hard. And when we make it hard, we become characterized as a people who are known by what we're against rather than what we're for. We know what sins God hates. We know what people God doesn't like. We know how bad the world is. We know how awful things are going to be before everything ends. But we don't know this grand news that when Christ said on the cross, it is finished, this is what he meant. It is finished. The, the kingdoms of this world are passing away. A new world is coming, and we are invited not only to be part of that new world, but by virtue of being filled with the Holy Spirit, we're invited to be people who embody that hope and joy and peace now, not tomorrow. It's good news. Receive it. And the eunuch does and goes back to Ethiopia. Huh. So what happens? He, the eunuch, a man who has no capacity to father children, becomes the father of the church in Ethiopia. To this day, 2,000 years later, the Coptic church. 65% Christian in Ethiopia. Not because of missionaries. Not because of Western transplants. Because of the eunuch. 
Reminds me of John 4, where Jesus talks to the woman who's been married five times. And she becomes an evangelist, proclaiming the fidelity of Christ. God sees with different eyes. The eunuch becomes the father of millions spiritually. The woman who had five failed marriages reveals the truth of the faithful one. And odds are that if I'd seen the eunuch, I would have walked to the other side of the street. And if I'd seen the woman with five failed marriages, or the person living in a motel three blocks from here, or the person sleeping on our porch, or the person sleeping in a tent under I-90, the, the overwhelming temptation is to walk around. Because God can do things, but this is not what God does. Putting me there. Oh, yes, it is what God does. And if it's not what God does, we're in the wrong gospel. God's breaking down walls and inviting us to see with new eyes and go out proclaiming the hope wherever God takes us. Are we listening to the Holy Spirit? Are we going? That's the story of hope God wants to write in each of our lives. Let's pray. Father, I pray that um, uh, we wouldn't write our own story, but that we would allow you to write a story of hope through us that only you can write. Give us ears to hear, hearts to respond to what your Holy Spirit is saying even today. As we pray in Christ's name, amen. Maybe there are those this morning that you want to pray for who need to know Christ. Maybe um, God has spoken to you about needing to empty your hands from some pragmatic things keeping you from saying yes to God. Maybe you need to know Christ for the first time yourself. We'll have prayer team folks up here uh, who'd be happy to pray with you as we worship and close in response.